All right. Hey, guys, let's, uh, good morning, Trinity. Let's change this up. Would you stand in reverence to God's word? We're going to go right to the text. And um, hey, listen, this is the very best part of the sermon. I mean it. This is the very best part. So let this text do business with you. All right. Let's give our attention to it. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by wor- worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Amen. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. So uh, last week, we uh, finished our sermon series called uh, The Forgotten Torah, and next week, we'll begin a new sermon series on 1 John uh, that will take us all the way into the Advent season. Uh, So we're really excited about that sermon season. It's subtitled, Searching for Certainty. It's going to be great. We're excited about it. Uh, So please invite a friend. Really, it'll be wonderful. Uh, So this week, we have a one-off sermon on a subject that several people have mentioned is conspicuously missing from my preaching. So I'm really sorry about that, because today we're going to talk about Jesus' absolute favorite subject, generosity. Jesus talks about money more than he talks about prayer, 
more than he talks about heaven. Clearly, the subject is important. Now, if you're a visitor today, first I want to th- first I want you to know that I don't preach on money every Sunday, and there isn't some hidden ask at the end of the service, right? Uh, and second, because we've a chosen to address the subject just with one sermon. There's so much that I'm not going to say. That I'm not going to say. So if you do have questions, please feel free to approach me. But before I dive in, here's what I want you to know. Whether you are a mature Christian, or if you're a new Christian, or if you're here just because someone dragged you into church today, and you're not even convinced that Christianity is true. For all three of you, those categories, your happiness hangs in the balance. See, God designed you a certain way. He made you in his image, and you were designed to be a giver. And when you're not, your soul becomes disfigured. Now, you don't even have to open up the Bible to arrive at that conclusion. For instance, um, a couple of sociologists, Smith and Davidson from Notre Dame, they did a study and they put their findings in a book called uh, The Paradox of Generosity. And this was published by Oxford Press, y'all. So this is serious. This isn't some self-published trash, all right? Their studies found that giving has the capability of reducing the maladaptive self-absorption, their words, maladaptive self-absorption that many ungenerous Americans experience. Listen to this quote from, one of their, from their study. They say, generosity is paradoxical. Those who give receive back in turn. By spending ourselves for others' well-being, we enhance our own. And letting go of some of what we own, we better secure our own lives. By giving ourselves away, we ourselves move toward greater flourishing. This is not only a philosophical or religious teaching. It is a sociological fact. The generosity paradox can also be stated in the negative. By grasping onto what we currently have, we lose out on better goods that we might have gained. In keeping to ourselves what we possess, we diminish its long-term value to us. By always protecting ourselves against future uncertainties and misfortunes, We are formed in ways that make us more anxious about uncertainties and vulnerable to future misfortunes. In short, by failing to care for others, we do not properly care for ourselves. It is no coincidence, they say, that the word miser is etymologically related to the word miserable. Those are non-Christians. Biblical generosity is for you. God ain't broke. This is for you. See, when we are generous people, or or when we're not generous people, our souls are disfigured. And so when Jesus talks about money, he is actually pleading for your soul. And my experience is that you and I will not grow into fully mature Christians until you lay at Christ's feet how you feel about your money and possessions. And why? Your personal generosity unlocks or restrains who you experience God to be towards you. So in the following moments, what I want to do is I want to use Jesus' teaching that we just heard in in Luke 12. um, And and I want to use it as an occasion to explore uh, these four categories. The definition of generosity, the danger of greed, 
the basis of generosity and then the practice of generosity. So let's begin with the definition of generosity. And, and let me begin by uh, quickly summarizing Jesus' parable or, or this teaching, what we just saw. So in verse 13, a guy goes to Jesus, right, and he says, hey, Jesus, help me with something. Tell my brother to give me half the inheritance. And Jesus isn't sure why this guy's coming to him, so he doesn't really oblige, but he does something better. He responds with a parable. Verse 16, he says, there's this rich guy who gets a big payday, so he asks, you know, what should I do? He goes, I know, I'm going to tear down my barn, I'm going to make bigger ones. And when he does that, he says, verse 19, then I'll rest easy, I will have security. Right, that's what he's looking for, I'll have security. Verse 20, no security comes, he dies and his wealth passes on to someone else. That's the parable. And then after Jesus tells it, he looks at his disciples Disciples who are not rich, all right, fishermen, smelly fishermen, and he applies this parable to them as if they're the rich guy in the parable, right? And he exhorts them. He says, don't be anxious. He assumes that misplaced vision of security is going to produce anxiety. So don't be, and he explores anxiety for 10 verses, and then he gives them the antidote for their sickness of anxiety. Verse 33 says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. And then he ends in verse 34 with the biblical principle that anchors Jesus' teaching on wealth. He says, for where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. That is the correlation or the principle that is running through this passage. A person wants wealth in order to feel secure. But the object, the thing in which you and I find security is our treasure. The security-giving thing is your treasure. And your heart is loyal to your treasure. But if your treasure is anything other than God, it will produce anxiety. And that's how come Jesus says your heart follows and, and migrates to your treasure. This is pretty intuitive, right? I mean, isn't it? You probably could care like nothing about Bitcoin, but if you buy $100,000 worth of Bitcoin, then all of a sudden you're invested and you're interested, right? You start cheering for Bitcoin. You lobby where you can. You're, you're highly tied up into Bitcoin. Your joy, your anxiety, your heart is wrapped up into Bitcoin. Where your treasure is, there will also be your heart and your interests, and your loyalty, loyalty. And this is why we experience anxiety. Like when Bitcoin or whatever it is gives us security instead of God. But here's the implication. When you experience anxiety, you can be sure that greed has infested your heart. That stings a little bit, doesn't it? Greed is an inordinate desire for wealth or excessive concern or worry over it. That's a pretty good working definition of greed. The cancer of greed is so advanced in our hearts that it can only be cured by an equally penetrating antidote of generosity. But what is generosity precisely? Listen, generosity is giving good things to others Freely, abundantly, regularly, and sacrificially. 
And all of those adjectives matter. Freely, abundantly, regularly, and sacrificially. And if all four of those words are not present in your giving, then you're not cutting deep enough. That's why, Jesus, that's why what Jesus says to us sounds super over the top, right? He says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Why is Jesus so drastic? Well, this brings us to our second point. It's because there are dangerous obstacles to generosity. There's a danger to greed. So in my first assignment in the Air Force, I was stationed in a small town in West Texas. The loveliest thing in that town was that pretty lady, Amanda. But after her, it drops off pretty severely. Uh, This wasn't exactly a tourist attraction. Uh, There are a lot of amazing lakes in Texas, but out in the desert of West Texas, the lakes aren't like the showstoppers, okay? And in this particular area where I was, uh, the water didn't look that fresh, honestly. It had a certain smell. It It wasn't very pleasant. So my group of friends on the weekend would say, come on, Ronnie, we're going to the lake to have some fun. To which I respond, gross, it smells. To which they respond, don't worry about that. You will get used to it. Guess what? They were right. I got used to the stinky smell and I stopped noticing it. It's a little funny until a person grows accustomed to something toxic. That's the main risk with greed. When that man in verse 13 approached Jesus, asking him to make a judgment in order to get half of his inheritance, he was not open to the possibility that the problem was principally with his own greed, not his brother. I mean, you get this, right? This guy didn't probably, he didn't wake up and say, you know, I might be a greedy person. Let me, let me get a second opinion on this, right? No one talks like that. Why? Because we're all accustomed to the smell of greed. And we stop noticing. Years ago, I heard a pastor say that no one in his ministry had ever confessed to the sin of greed. And my pastoral experience is the same. People that I love have confessed alcohol addiction, pornography addiction, adultery, lying, disbelief. But never once has a person come to me, taken out an appointment, said, Pastor, I want to confess that I struggle with greed. No one says that. You know why? Because greed is like a chameleon sin. It's the gross smell that you get used to. And in addition to this blinding effect, it chokes out our spiritual vitality. Do you remember that parable that Jesus tells about the seed in the four soils? So the seed is God's word. And Jesus says some of the seed fell among the thorns and they choked it out. Y'all remember that? Matthew 4. This is how Jesus interprets that. He says, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Jesus' diagnosis, the sort of, of choking wealth is the only way to describe what we see in North America. So another set of sociologists, Emerson and Smith, uh, they wrote a book called Passing the Plate. And so they set out to answer this question. 
why does the most affluent group of Christians in 2,000 years of church history give away so little money? Because we have plenty of discretionary income. They record that 20% of all Christians literally give away nothing. 20%. The average percent percentage of money tithed or offered by Christians is 2.9%. And that average includes the really, really generous givers. Three-fourths of all Christians in America give away less than 2%, less than 2% of their income. Now, how can this be explained in light of God's word? Well, these sociologists say that America's institutionalized mass consumerism is fully manifest in our churches. Think, think of how, like, um, think about this with me, how a good, solid, non-Christian spends money, right? They make a budget. They save money. They create college savings account for their children. They don't eat out too much. They, uh, they, they maybe take vacations, but they're not opulent, right? They pay their bills on time. But they don't give any money away except in relatively small amounts where there's a fundraiser. The giving habits of that non-Christian person, that person who does not believe in God, is exactly the same of those who purport to absolutely trust in Jesus and him alone. There is no difference. We've been choked out. We've been choked out. Our resistance to generous living is like a weed. And this weed is greed, and it's choking out the vitality of our spiritual lives. The church is no different than people outside of the church. The regular and sacrificial element that has characterized the church for 2,000 years is all but disappeared. Greed has the power to hide itself unlike any other sin, and it chokes out our spiritual vitality until we become bored with God. Listen, everyone, none of us have a money problem. We have a contentment problem. We demand that our money give us something that is reserved for Christ alone. And for this reason, we never lay our wealth at Christ's feet. We don't invite him into that part of our lives. So how do we change that? Well, do you know that the number one predictor of a person's generosity in the churches, do you know what it is? It is their vision of who God is and what they think God is like. That's the number one predictor. So let's turn our attention to the basis of generosity. So we discussed a, a, a definition and the dangers of greed. So let's look at the basis of our generosity. So recently I was uh, reading some interesting statistics on Bill Gates. I mean, y'all probably read this stuff. I don't know how, these, how good these statistics are. But Forbes estimates Bill Gates' wealth at $72 billion. And the Gates family is super, super generous. They are purported to have given away 22 to $26 billion through their foundation. They have given away nearly a third of their fortune. All right? So consider his wealth for a second with me. Working on a, a rate of like a 6% interest, Bill Gates would have to spend $6 million a day 
for the next 50 years, every single day for 50 years to exhaust his wealth. Bill Gates makes $114 a second, and therefore it's not worth his time to spend three seconds to bend down to pick up a $100 bill, right? He has given away more money than all of us together have, will ever make in our whole life. And here's what I want you to know. Compared to the Lord's riches... Bill Gates is, a, is destitute. He's a beggar. And let me explain how I get there. So Jesus says in verse 27, 28, he says, Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that's how God clothes the grass of the fields, right? So Solomon was a, um, was a figure who was understood as having inexhaustible riches, right? So Jesus looks at the creation itself and he says, God robes the grass. Can your money do that? And here's where it gets really, really interesting. The Lord is, is generous or, or the Lord gives to his enemies, has Bill Gates ever written a really big check to Steve Jobs? No. He dismantles his enemies that cut into his profit margins, right? Well, our Lord is so generous that everyone, literally the whole world, benefits from his riches. Our Father is intrinsically a generous God. He is a giver in the very essence of who he is. All of life, regardless of whether you are a Christian or not, all that you enjoy has been given to you by God. He has woven his generosity into the things that you and I find delightful. You know, I heard Matt Chandler talk about like this concept with the taste of food. So God made us to need food, but he also made it delicious. And he totally didn't have to do that, right? This is like a common grace to all mankind. And this is a total little surprise. Y'all didn't see this coming. We looked at a pig, gross, smelly, playing around in the mud and said, you know what? I bet that hind leg fried up can turn into bacon and God, and that could turn into God's greatest gift to mankind. I mean, ba bacon's like magic, man. You could put it in anything and it makes it better. Sandwiches, salad, chocolate anything. Bacon can cure depression. It's amazing. It is a gift to everyone, whether you believe in God or not. So the scriptures are filled with uh, economic language that help you to understand just how generous he is. Perhaps the most famous verse in all the Bible, John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Here, God's generosity is pointed at his enemies, right? The father gives the son not to condemn the world, but to give the world a way out. And all of us are like in glad rebellion, and God pays out for us, and he makes a way. 
There is an outstanding debt between us and God, and God pays it. He satisfies the debt. The Father sending the Son marks his generosity. God pays your debt, and he fills your life with good gifts. See, the Bible is clear that all things are made by God and given by God. When the rain waters your garden, it's a gift from God, even if you don't believe he exists. That's incredible generosity. The wood and the nails that the Roman soldiers used to hang Jesus, where did they come from? The saliva you and I form in our mouth and the muscles that we use to spit on Jesus as he hung on the cross was all given to you by a God who made and sustains all of the universe. This is radical generosity against his enemies. And then Jesus pays up. Jesus didn't give you 10% of his blood. He poured it out, all of it. For you, it was costly for God to redeem his enemies. But our Father is generous. Listen, I love all of you. I do. But I would not pay my son's life for yours. That's a price that is too steep. But not for our God. So what's the motivation for our generosity? Our motivation is found in the reality of God's breathtaking generosity. God gives us, gives to us freely, abundantly, regularly, and sacrificially. God gives good things to us in that way. And so our motivation for giving is nothing less than the generosity of God, you see. All of it belongs to God. And so we give back to him. We trust that he will take care of us. Our stuff is not our security. He is our security. And when we make visible God's generosity in our lives, we can change the world. We can be a part of something big. Listen to this. In 117, this is the second century, in 117, Caesar Hadrian was in power in the Roman Empire. Christianity was taking off like wildfire, and this felt very destabilizing to the Roman uh, powers. So this emperor, Hadrian, he sent a spy of sorts to kind of investigate what's going on with Christians. So he, he sent a guy named Aristides. And Aristides investigated Christians and listened to this short excerpt on how he describes Christians. And he, speaking about a Christian brother, who has, gives to him who has not, without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their home and they rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast for two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. This is a new people, king, and there is something divine in their midst. Aristides, this, this Greek philosopher, was converted to Christianity. Is there any doubt 
that the early church were absolutely unraveled by God's generosity towards them? Is there any doubt that when these poor Christians looked at the world, they saw it through a filter of abundance? Can you see how God's generosity like flowed through them? Do you see the world through a filter of abundance or through a filter of scarcity? God has been so abundant with us because he is a God of abundance. Well, how do we recapture that vision of generosity and embody it in our own lives? So we looked at the definition of generosity, then we evaluated the dangers of greed, and then the basis of generosity. So let me just get real practical on this final point. This is the practice of generosity. So in the Old Testament, the people asked, how do I know? How do I know if I'm being generous? And in classic Old Testament fashion, they gave a number, right? 10%. That is what they call a tithe, which literally means that they offered to God the first 10% of all they made. Now it appears that um, that number does not translate into a specific requirement in the New Testament. So what is it that you see in the New Testament? They gave more, not 10%. Listen to this passage in Luke 21. Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. In essence, this widow gave everything. Not 10%, like all of it. And this was the practice of the early church. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 to the churches in Macedonia. Listen to this, you guys. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." I mean, these guys are begging to give their money away. They are not the exception to the rule in the early church. You and I have never seen anything like that in our affluent churches. How do we get there? In our passage today, Jesus finishes, right? Verse 34, he says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So on one hand, your heart follows your treasure, right? Your money flows effortlessly to what you love. But on the other hand, this means that you and I can make intentional choices to direct our wealth and therefore placing our affections on Christ. We want to put our money where we want our heart to be. Right? So put your money where you want your heart to be. But to be generous, we need a plan. Because our heart does not accidentally drift to good things. We need a strategy. So here it is. 
First, make a budget. If you don't have a budget, you guys, let us help you. Because remember, what you own is not yours. It belongs to the Lord, and it is irresponsible to try to steward his assets without a plan, right? In your budget, in the same way that you have a savings plan, make a giving plan. Make giving a priority. Plan for it. Plan a percentage, and then see if you can make it progressive, Try to increase it over time so you can feel the joy of sacrifice of it pressing in on you. Because if we give out of our leftovers, that is not real generosity, according to the Bible. So we, see, right, right, we need something to break the spell of the greed in our hearts. Now, when you give, we are not saying that you have to give all of your money to the church, right? That's not what we're saying. Paul says, do good to everybody. This is Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Do good to everybody, but especially to the household of faith. So allow the faith community, the church that shepherds you, that prays for you, that baptizes your children, that visits you in the hospital, let that faith community have a place of privilege in your giving, you see. Now, some of you are saying, yeah, Ronnie, I have a budget, and it says I cannot give you anything. If you are up to your eyes, eyeballs, in debt, again, let us help you. There are literally tons of incredibly brilliant people in this church who are experts in money management. They're so good at this stuff. Let them help you. We want to help you so that you're not a slave to debt and money mismanagement. So make a budget that has a giving plan, not just a savings plan. Give your faith community a place of privilege and give a percentage and ask God for the courage to increase it with time. That's the strategy. Now in this church, we have people who are all over the place, right? And so let me see if I can't help you visualize um, where you are on a spectrum. First, we have like this initial giver, right? Some of you have never taken the step of faith of giving. And this is when the person makes the mental switch from what do I want to do with my stuff to what does God want me to do with his stuff, right? And let me just say, this is where our biggest celebration in this church is going to be. I mean, when a person goes from having never given anything to giving just a little, man, that is a big deal. And, and, and we just want to celebrate that with you. Like, we just want to get in there and just celebrate. Because for Trinity to make a serious impact in Puerto Rico, we need 100% of our people to participate. Even if you can't give a tenth, you just start somewhere, right? And this is a really big step, and, and we just want to celebrate that with you. Like, that's, it's a big deal for you to take that step of faith. Now, the second area on the spectrum is what I'll call the emerging giver. This is a person who has given, if the, church, if the preacher preaches a really guilt-laden sermon, right? Really guilted you into it, right? And maybe there's a pressing need, but there's no plan. What we want to do is we want to help this person move from the occasional, like, tipping the plate to consistently giving a portion, a portion of their first fruits. The third group does this consistently, does give consistently, 
but perhaps they have not let God press into their lives, right? Perhaps moving to what God, God calls a tithe as a general rule, maybe that feels really scary. It's just like, ah. So what we want to do is we want to inspire you uh, with God's grace just to take risks, to kind of move towards that 10% as, as a rule of thumb, not as a law, but as a rule of thumb. And then the final section of the spectrum is the giver who kind of just grew up doing the right thing, right? You give. You consistently write your checks for 10%, but even still, it's mechanical, right? We want you to feel the joy of sacrificial extravagance. We want you to feel the joy of trusting God in new ways and seeing what he does through you when you just trust and you get out of your comfort zone. Now, here's what Trinity owes you and longs to do. First, I want you to know full accountability with money and full transparency with money. Ain't no one getting rich here off your tithe. We are accountable and transparent, all right? And I'm sorry that churches have done that and got rich off the backs of generous people. I'm sorry about that. I hate it. I hate it. I'm sorry, all right? I'm not, I'm not going to defend any of that. We can only do the right thing. But what, here's what we want to do as a church. We want that, that principle of the tithe to be reflected in our own church budget, right? What if $1 of every $10 we receive goes directly towards missions and mercy and poverty relief and educational programs and, and stopping human trafficking, Right? And what if each year we increase that by 1%? And what if we got to a place where 50% of our budget were leaving the walls of Trinity? That's where I want us to get. Like, no one here wants to get rich, man. We just want to just, like, unnerve people with God's generosity, right? I want to get there. That's what I want Trinity to be about. And I'm in this giving journey with you. I want Trinity to be known, like the Christians in the early church for being so wildly extravagant that every good work in Puerto Rico has our resources all over it. Not so that we would be known, but that Christ would be exalted and that we would celebrate his generosity and the generosity he has with us, a bunch of misfits. Man, we're a bunch of misfits. So here's how I want to end. I want to just take a moment of silence, just a moment, and I want, I want you to let this Holy Spirit press into you. Take a second to contemplate God's generosity towards you, right? Don't think about what you don't have. Think about what you have. Count your blessings. That's where, that's where I want your heart to go, and then I'm going to close this. I'll move to the Lord's table.